If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 23, starting verse 44. Luke chapter 23, verse 44, and if you would uh, follow along as I read. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus cried out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said uh, this, he breathed his last. Now when the, the, cur- or when the centurion uh, saw what had, ha- or what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, uh, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. If you would just pray with me before we get going in the sermon this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for uh, who you are, God, for what you have done. Send your son to die on the cross, Lord. As we go over this important passage this morning, Lord, I pray that um, our hearts are, are overflowed with joy, Lord, for what Christ has done for us on the cross, Lord. Be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. I'm reading a book as we've been going through uh, um, the sermon series, the end of Luke here. It's, it's titled, uh, The Final Days of Jesus. And the, the subtitle of this book is this, The Most Important Week of the Most Important Person Who Ever Lived. The Most Important Week of the Most Important Person Who Ever Lived. No matter what you think this morning or believe this morning about Jesus, no one can doubt his importance. His life and, and, and death changed the face of this world, especially Western civilization. And for how important Jesus' life was, it was really his death that sets him apart. His death and resurrection that, that made him our Savior. I want you to think about this uh, as the holidays are going through and Christmas is coming up and we spend a whole month and some people a lot more than a month celebrating Jesus' birth and Christmas, which we should. Right? Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, coming down in human form as a baby in a manger, which is incredible to think about. There's really not a whole lot written in the Gospels. And there's a lot, but not a whole lot written in the Gospels about Jesus' birth. And there's very little to nothing written about his childhood. Mark makes mention of his birth. John really doesn't talk about it. But all the Gospels, all four of them, spend a lot of time talking about this last week of Jesus' life. And we've, we went over this before. A third of Matthew, one week, chapters 21 through 28, just one week of Jesus' life. A third of Mark, chapters 11 through 16. A, a third of Luke, chapters 19 through 24. And nearly half of John on one week of Jesus' life, chapters 12 through 20. This is the most important week of human existence, and it really finds its climax in the passage that we're going over today, the death of Christ. It's actually a, a sermon that was supposed to be one sermon, but I kind of split it into to two sermons, so this week and next week, because it's really hard to talk about the death of Christ without going over the resurrection. So the sermon's going to end as part one, and next week we're going to talk about the burial and resurrection of Christ. 
But in this portion of Scripture today, I believe there's four events that really explain the death of Christ and why it was so important. The four events are this, and this will be our outline this morning. The supernatural darkness, the Father's turning, the tearing of the curtain, and the accepting of Jesus' spirit. So the supernatural darkness, the Father's turning, the tearing of the curtain— and the accepting of Jesus' spirit. Four, four events that explain the death of Christ. So let's go through these four events. The first one is supernatural darkness. Look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Well, the Jewish day, just so we can get our minds wrapped around of the time that's going, or the time sequence that's going on here. The Jewish, the Jewish day started at 6 a.m., and that was considered the first hour, 6 a.m. So the third hour, you would add three hours to 6 a.m. Now it's roughly would be 9 a.m. The sixth hour, you would add six hours to 6 a.m., which would be 12 noon. And the ninth hour, you would add nine hours to 6 a.m., which would be 3 p.m. This means darkness while Jesus was on the cross, went from 12 noon, and it lasted to 3 p.m., three hours of darkness. At this point, Jesus had already been on the cross for three hours. We learn this from Mark 15, 20, 25, which says, and it was about the, the third hour when, when they crucified him. The third hour, again, 3 plus 6 is 9, so 9 a.m., they crucified Jesus, but it wasn't till 12 noon that the supernatural darkness came in, this darkness that lasted three hours. Well, what happened before the darkness? Let's cover that. I mean, we talked about this last week. It's mostly the sermon last week was, was the hours before the darkness. And Jesus, in those hours, speaks three different times. Two of them we covered last week. They're both in Luke, and, and that's Luke 23, verse 34, which says, And he said, Father, forgive them, for they, they know not what they do. We talked about this last week. This is probably Jesus specifically praying for the soldiers who were just doing their job, doing their duty, right? sinful and obviously uh, performing a horrible act. But Jesus, as they're nailing him to the cross, as they're crucifying him, prays out to God for these people that are nailing him to the cross. Amazing mercy and grace. The second saying that Jesus has is found in Luke 23, verse 43. And he said to, to him, right, the criminal, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. More mercy and grace as there's this criminal that deserves to be crucified on the cross, admittedly confessing his sins and repenting there on the cross, asked Jesus to remember him, and, and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, mercy and grace. The third time he speaks, we didn't go over this last week, it's actually found in John. It's John nineteen twenty six. He he says to his mother, Mary's out in the in the crowd watching him being crucified, and he sees Mary and he says to his mother, Woman, which in that day and age was a very polite way of addressing it's like saying lady in that day and age. Woman, behold your son. I'm guessing standing right next to, to Mary was John, not the Baptist, but the disciple of Jesus. Because then he says, says to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to, be, to his own home. In other words, Jesus on the cross looks out and sees Mary and is concerned for her. 
Joseph at this point was probably dead. We don't hear about Joseph uh, from, from anywhere in Jesus' ministry, meaning he probably died somewhere before Jesus turned 30 and was um, uh, doing his public ministry. So he had concern for his mother, and he tells John, the disciple he loved, to take care of his mom. In other words, from 9 a.m. to 12 noon, before the darkness hit, all we see from Jesus is mercy and grace and concern for others, the soldiers that, that were crucifying him, the criminal that was on the cross next to him, his own mom that was out in the crowd. But from 12 noon to 3 p.m., there is darkness. Something radically changed in these three hours. The last three hours on the cross, there was darkness over the whole land. The Greek word for land there is gain, which land is a good translation. Sometimes it's translated earth. It's probably not the whole earth. It can just mean an area of land, but the extent of the darkness is unknown because that word doesn't give us the extent of the darkness. What is known is that the darkness lasted for three hours. I mean, think about that. Jesus' birth, as we get close to celebrating that, light, a star that shines and shows where Jesus would be born. Jesus' baptism, the the heavens open up and and God speaks, and you can imagine the light that shined forth. The transfiguration, Jesus Jesus exposes his glory to the disciples, and it, it was light, brighter than the sun at noon, it says. But at the cross... There's darkness. What's this darkness mean? Well, first of all, it was supernatural. It wasn't some kind of eclipse. And eclipses don't last for three hours. It was a supernatural event that happened. And second, it was not caused by Satan. Even though darkness is related to Satan in, the, in, in scriptures, Satan never causes literal darkness on the earth. You you never see Satan with that type of power. But there is one character in the Old Testament that often brings darkness with his presence and is prophesied to bring darkness to the earth. Don't turn there, but listen to what Genesis 15, 12 says. As sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said, God's presence brought darkness. There's similar language in Mount Sinai uh, on the mountain. Deuteronomy 4.11 says this, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain. Right? God's presence is on this mountain. While the mountain burned with fire to the, to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. And that's very similar language to Genesis 15. Yahweh's presence on this mountain one of the plagues in Egypt was darkness for three days, right? Exodus ten twenty one. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that they may, there, there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. God caused darkness over the land for three days. It's prophesied that the day of the Lord, there'll be darkness. The day of Yahweh, there'll be darkness. Joel 2.1 says this, Blow your trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. 
Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness. Amos 5.20, and it's probably a, a verse that our culture really needs to hear. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Amos 8, 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Zephaniah 1, 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and, and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty men cry aloud there. A day of, of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and dev- devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Darkness in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture typically represented God's judgment on earth. You know, sometimes we give Satan way too much credit. The darkness was not caused by Satan. This darkness was caused by Yahweh. You know, I, I personally don't find joy, and I hate calling out other pastors in our community or in our country or throughout the world. But sometimes I hear other pastors preach or talk or, or teach, and I kind of cringe. Our culture wants to make God to be this like big teddy bear in the sky that you hug when you're sorrowful or something. And I, and I get it, and, and I'm the first to say, listen, God is love. He is love. But God is also holy. On the day of Jesus' death, the darkness was caused by God's holiness and justice as he poured out his wrath on Jesus. Listen, the Israelites got it. When they saw the darkness, look, look at verse 48. And all the crowds, which that's the Jewish people watching this, this spectacle happening, all the crowds that had a symbol for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, this darkness, and Matthew tells us a big earthquake, they returned home beating their breasts. They got it, God's wrath. One commentator said, God's presence at Calvary is often overlooked. But it's only when God arrived that Calvary became the saving event that it was. God's wrath poured out on his son as he bore our sins. Is in fact the major reality of Calvary. And that happened in the hours of darkness. Listen, I believe these three hours on the cross when darkness came is the greatest display of who God is. The character of God in full display for for everyone to see. Remember uh, in Exodus when Moses cries out to God? I did a whole sermon uh, about this in in all of Exodus. There's this point that is often overlooked, this passage in Exodus, where, where Moses cries out to God Asking God to reveal himself. Asking God, reveal what it means that you are Yahweh. Reveal your character to me, to me, God. Who are you? And God, in this passage, reveals himself to Moses. 
He actually puts Moses in the cliff of a rock. We know this story. And quickly passes by just so Moses can get a glimpse uh, of God's glory and holiness. And as he passes by Moses, right, just this glimpse so that Moses wouldn't die because the full presence of God would, would kill Moses. As he passed by, he told Moses, he said, I'm going to pass by and then I'm going to proclaim who I am. And this is what he says. This is Exodus 34, 6. Just listen. It says this, The Lord, the Lord, which are all capitals, meaning Yahweh, Yahweh. This is who I am, Moses, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's in one paragraph. That's what God says he is. That's that's who he said he was to Moses. Moses, I am both 100% merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, yet holy, just, and wrathful, who will by no means clear the guilty. Yahweh is both 100% and perfectly merciful and gracious and holy, just, and wrathful. How can it be both? How can it be loving, gracious, forgiving, and at the same time just, holy, and not forgiving? The answer is the cross. It's the cross. He sent his son to satisfy his wrath, to satisfy his justice, God actively poured out his wrath on his son so that those that put their faith in his son can be forgiven, can be saved. Now listen, that is love. I mean, to understand the depths of God's love, you really have to understand the holiness of God. I really feel that's what what Christianity as a whole and a lot of pastors are missing today. They're missing the depths of God's love by ignoring his holiness. And I, and I understand. I get it. I really believe people so badly want to paint God as this loving God. So they downplay words like wrath and holiness and justice. Because this just doesn't seem loving, right? Bringing darkness doesn't seem loving. But by doing that, they downplay the greatest act of love we have ever witnessed as man. Jesus paying the price of sin on the cross. This is only a great act of love if that price is expensive. That's what the darkness represents. This is what one commentator said. God arrived in the darkness at Calvary that day to unleash judgment, not in an um, an end times, last day, Uh, sense against the ungodly, but in a salvation sense against his son. God brought the utter darkness of hell to Jerusalem that day as he unleashed on Jesus Christ the full extent of his wrath against the sins of all those who will ever be saved. The darkness wasn't caused by Satan or the absence of God, but rather by his presence in full judgment, vengeance, and fury. Infinite wrath moved by an infinite, holy, and righteous God, released infinite punishment on his son. And because the son is infinite himself, in just three hours, 
he was able to absorb all that punishment of eternal hell for all those who ever believed. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus for us. That's what the darkness represents. Which leads to the second event, the Father's turning. Father's turning. Do me a favor and just keep your finger on Luke 23. We'll be back there real shortly. But I want to look at just a, a small passage, actually just a verse. Turn with me to Matthew 27, verse 46. Matthew 27, verse 46. This is what it says in, in Matthew 27, verse 46. And it looks like it's on the board if you, or screen if you want to just look up. It says this. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sambachthani, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the ninth hour again. If you add nine plus six a.m., that means it's 3 p.m., which was the end of the darkness. At the end of the darkness, Jesus then cries out with a loud voice. Cried out in Greek is a word that, that means to cry out with an unusually loud volume, to scream or to shout. Matthew writes, he cried out, but he also adds, with a loud voice. In other words, this literally means he screamed out as loud as he could. I mean, think about that. It's been rough going just through these passages as it leads up to this time, studying crucifixion and the beatings that would happen before crucifixion. But all morning, Jesus has been beating. From the early hours of the morning, probably Thursday night even, Jesus had been beaten. He spent six hours on the cross up to this point. In the first three hours on the cross, all we see coming from Jesus' mouth is just mercy and concern for others. But in the ninth hour, Jesus screams. And he screams, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what happened? Well, of course we know, and we should know by now, that he's quoting a Psalms that I've gone over and over because it so perfectly predicts what happened with Jesus on the cross. And this is Psalms 22. You don't need to turn there. This is just an amazing Psalms. I'd encourage you to read it this afternoon or, or throughout um, this season. It's actually David who's the author of this Psalm, and I believe he's writing about his life, knowing that his life pointed forward to a coming Messiah, a coming descendant. David knew this. God revealed it to him. And so I believe a lot of his writings in the Psalms, he knew his life pointed forward. Let me just read some parts of the Psalms because I think it's amazing. And and we've gone over it, so you'll recognize a lot. Verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from from the womb. You made me trust uh, you at my mother's breast. On, your, uh, on you was I cast from my birth, 
And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. And it's David talking about his life, but this is obviously pointing to Jesus, right? Perfectly obedient from day one. Set apart, chosen by God. Verse 14 says this, I am poured out like, like water, and all my bones are out of joint, important, out of joint, not broken. My heart is like wax. It melts within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. What's, what's that sound like? Right, Jesus on the cross. Verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And this is obviously Jesus on the cross. Well, I want you to hear how this psalm starts. Right, verse 1, Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From, my, from, my, from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. This is Jesus on the cross, crying out to his, his Father, crying out to God, asking, God, why are you so far from me? Why aren't you answering me? Asking why he's not bringing comfort and rest. Then verse 3 says this, Yet you are holy. Yet you are holy. What's holiness have to do with this? Well, well, holiness means separate. It means separating. A holy God can, can, is separate from sin and evil. There's a distance between a holy God and sin. A holy God cannot, cannot be associated with sin. He can't associate with sin. He can't, he can't even look upon evil. Habakkuk one thirteen says this, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. This means, listen, when sin was placed on Jesus' back, when, when Jesus literally became sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, somehow, and this is, this is a mystery, somehow God turned his back on Jesus. Because the Father is holy. There is some kind of temporary separation that is beyond explanation. A mystery. For the first time ever, from eternity past, there is a separation between God the Father and God the Son of some sort. Look at the words of Jesus, Matthew 20, 27, verse 46. This should break our hearts this morning. Look what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the first time and only time Jesus doesn't call God his father. There's a separation of some sort. How can the Trinity, the perfect Trinity be? I don't know. But that intimacy is gone somehow. 
Instead of my father, my father, it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's God's response? The same as Gethsemane, silence. There's no rest, there's no comfort. I'm going to be clear, this is the difference between heaven and hell. Hell, or heaven is, is the full presence of God's goodness and glory and holiness and being a part of that. And that's why heaven is so amazing and joy-filled. Hell is the separation of, uh, of God's felt presence. Hell is not feeling God's presence. It's the absence of God's felt presence. Which is worse than torture. It's worse than physical pain. It's the worst part of hell. It's also the worst part of the cross. It wasn't the torture. It wasn't the physical pain. I mean, and through all of that, you just see mercy coming from Jesus. A calmness, even, coming from Jesus. It wasn't the suffocation, right? We talked about that, to stand up, to just take a breath. It wasn't the ridicule of the people. That didn't, didn't phase him. It wasn't the abandonment of his friends. He predicted it. It was God the Father turning away from God the Son. Right, a mystery, but, it, but it's clear. The Father turning, or whatever that, that happened, whatever happened in those moments, was the worst part of the cross. As Jesus screams, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which leads to the third event, the tearing of the curtain. The tearing of the curtain. Look at verse 45. Back to Luke 23. Hopefully your finger is still there. Verse 45. It says this, While the sun light, or sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What's this mean, the curtain torn in? Well, to answer this, you really have to understand the, the temple and, and the significance of the curtain within the temple. Right, the temple was this, this huge place of worship in Jer- Jerusalem, which Jerusalem, it was right in the center of Jerusalem. You could see it from anywhere in Jerusalem on, on the hill. And, and Jerusalem, of course, was the center of Israel, the capital of Israel. And right in the center of this massive temple was the Holy of Holies. It's this room that held the, the Ark of the Covenant. It represented God's special presence. Therefore, this temple, right, that, that, that housed God's special presence somehow, was right in the middle of Jerusalem, was right in the middle of Israel, showed the Israelites and really showed the world that God dwelt with his people. He lived with his people, Israel. But remember, there's a problem. God is holy, right? And the Israelites are sinners. So even though God dwelt with his people, there was a separation, a massive curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the people. I've read this curtain was huge. It was 60 foot high, and, and most historians believe it was, it was four inches thick, about as thick as your hand. Massive curtain. And only once a year was anyone allowed to go inside the Holy of Holies. The Day of Atonement, where a priest would walk in, sprinkle blood on the ark. And it was the only way man could enter into the presence of a holy God like that. A priest representing the people. Therefore, the tearing of the curtain told God's people that Jesus had paved a way to have a personal relationship with the holy God. 
I mean, think about this. This temple was torn, and I can imagine there was thousands of people because this was uh, um, the Passover week, and people were at the temple at 3 o'clock. This temple, this curtain was torn from top to bottom, exposing the Holy of Holies to the world. Because of Jesus' death, we have total access to God. There's no more separation. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us with confidence. Right? Sinful man, we, we should have no confidence in the presence of a holy God. But because of Jesus... At the death on the cross, we can boldly and confidently draw near to God's. Let me just say it this way. The tearing of the curtain simply means this. In Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you can have a personal relationship with God. In Christ, if you have faith in Christ, you can have access to a holy God confidently. Which leads to the fourth event, the accepting of Jesus' spirit. Verse 46. Then Jesus cried out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is one of the last of the seven sayings on the cross that Jesus spoke out loud. And he quotes another Psalms in this portion of scripture. He quotes Psalms 31. It's another Psalm of David. I just want to read the first five verses because I think it's a beautiful psalms and, and kind of get what Jesus was saying in this. Psalms 31 verse 1 says this, and you can just follow or listen. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock, a refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. David wrote this psalms as a psalms of deliverance. As for whatever is going on in his life, enemies were surrounding him and threatening his life. He prayed to God that his enemies wouldn't put him to shame, verse 1. Attack him, verse, verse 2. Cause distress, grief, and sorrow, verse 9 through 10. That they wouldn't make him a horror, verse 11. That they wouldn't take his life, verse 13. And in the face of this overwhelming pressure by all of his enemies... He expresses confidence in Yahweh, saying, Into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, into your hands I commit my life. It's a beautiful psalm. The Jews actually, in the time period of Jesus, would pray this before they would go to sleep. For safety, as they are asleep at night, that that no one would come and harm them. They would pray, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Isn't that beautiful? And Jesus prays this before he dies. He only changes one word in the Psalms. Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It calls his, God, it calls his Father, Father again. 
The price is paid at this point. That relationship is restored. And having said this, he breathed his last. Look at verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Just like Pilate and Herod, another witness of, of Jesus is innocent. Verse 48, look at this. And, and all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had ha- ha- taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. Again, these Jews recognized the signs, saw the darkness, the earthquake, the tearing of the curtain. They realized they killed an innocent man. My guess, because these are a lot of people from the Jewish nation, that these, these are, many of these people that witnessed this were probably saved at Pentecost in Acts 2. Verse 49, And all of his acquaintances, these are Jesus' followers, and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus' disciples and followers, I'm sure stunned, not knowing what to think, scared, confused, thinking it's not supposed to end this way, which they're right. The story is not supposed to end this way. It's not supposed to end in Jesus' death. There's more to the story. It ends with an empty tomb. That's why this sermon is a two-part sermon. (laughs) I can't end with Jesus dead. We have to come back next week and and hear about him being alive. So I want to do something this morning. I want to end in a different passage. I want to end in a happier passage. How about that? If you would, turn with me to Matthew 3, verse 16. Again, this is the cutoff. It's a two-part series sermon. Next week we'll finish with Jesus' resurrection, which is the most glorious day for us as Christians. That's why we celebrate and come together and worship on Sundays. Because that's the day Jesus was raised. That's what the early church did in Acts. When, when John had his vision, he didn't have it on the Sabbath. He had it on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. And that's why we celebrate on Sundays. We'll talk about that next week. But look at this passage. Right? It's Jesus' baptism. It's a beautiful passage. Matthew 3, verse 16, it says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. The start of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is getting baptized. It says the heavens opened. Can you imagine if people that were there witnessing this, the light that shone from heaven? The Trinity is represented here. The Son, right? Jesus is being baptized. The Spirit is descending like a dove. The Father is speaking from heaven, proclaiming his love to his Son. And the glimpse of the Trinity that from eternity past had complete harmony and love for each other. You see it in this passage. Beautiful. God vocalizes his love by saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. My beloved son. Profound love. Isaiah 42, 1 talks about it. It says, behold my servant, this is Yahweh speaking, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. 
and he'll bring forth justice in nations. I am well pleased with this one. I am well pleased with my son. It's probably the first time, or it is the first time God could say that about a man since Adam. Jesus, the pure, spotless lamb, without blemish, completely sinless, perfectly submissive to God, perfectly obedient to his father. God looked down and said, I am well pleased with you. What happened? Baptism, right? The heavens open, the spirit comes down like the, the dove. The father says, I, my beloved, I am well pleased. Then we get to Jesus' death, the end of his ministry. The sky went dark. The father turns his back and Jesus screams, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what one pastor said. Only in his death was the perfect relationship between the father and son broken. When Jesus identified himself with sinful man and bore man's sin on on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by his father. Instead of the spirit settling heaven opening and the Father's blessing, the sky darkened and the perfect Messiah yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead of being called beloved by his Father, the Son bore the full force of the Father's rejection, wrath, and curse. Not because he had ever done anything to displease him, but only because he bore our displeasures. Jesus bore our iniquities on the cross. That means, this is very key, listen to this, that means Jesus was treated on the cross the way we deserve to be treated. But here's the good news, and this is where happiness and joy should jump in. If you've put your faith in Christ this morning, if you're a follower of him, God looks down on us the way he looked at Jesus at the baptism. He says, you are my beloved son and daughter who I am well pleased. Not because we did anything, but because of Christ. Because of what Christ did for us on the cross. I mean, if we can get in the back for Lord's Supper this morning, we say Lord's Supper is a celebration it's a celebration. And I know it's, it's hard because it's, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a heavy reality with the cross. And so we should take some time and examine our hearts and, and see where we stand with the Lord, and that's appropriate. But I'll tell you this. As we take a moment of silence, and you see some sin in your heart, they need to repent from. Repent and know this, that God's forgiven you. That God has forgiven you. And then we take the Lord's Supper in joyous remembrance of what Christ has done for us and how God looks at us. Let's take some time in silence and examine our hearts. I pray this morning that we remember Jesus on the cross as we go into the Christmas season. season that... Uh, as we celebrate Jesus' birth and that joyous time, remember why he came. And that that brings joy to our heart, that, that he died on the cross for our sins, and we can have a relationship with him. 
I also say this, if there's anyone that doesn't know Jesus this morning, that doesn't have a personal relationship with him, or just is uncertain where you stand, don't leave until you come talk with someone. Please come talk with me. I'd love to talk with you after the service. With that said, let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for who you are, Lord, and what you are doing in our church, in our church body, in our individual lives, Lord. But we thank you most of all, Lord, as we come to the Christmas season this month, Lord, that we celebrate you, I hope, Lord, more than anything else, more than gifts, Santa Claus, all that, all that stuff that comes with this season, Lord, but that we, we celebrate you and we remember what you did on the cross for us, Lord. That you paid for our sins, Lord. And because of that, we can have a relationship with you. We can be saved, Lord. Be with us this, this month, Lord, as we do that, as we celebrate that, Lord. Be with us this morning, Lord. I pray that we have a, a joy-filled afternoon, God. And thank you so much. In your son's name, amen.